Hello, welcome back to the podcast, the Neurocast podcast, hosted by me, Autistically RJ. This podcast hears me talking to neurodivergent people and neurodivergent voices about their experience being neurodivergent, expressing how they unmask and their neurodivergent journey from childhood to adulthood and all of things in between, with discussing specialty issues within the areas. On today's episode, here's me talking to Victoria Ellen actually Aspling, as you may know her from social media and her online presence in social advocacy for autism, uh, dyspraxia, dyslexia and undiagnosed, undiagnosed ADHD. She does a lot of work in the field of advocacy and is a PhD student. We chat a lot about these issues in the interview, which you'll hear in just a moment. If you got any questions, if you got any questions for the podcast, please do email neurocast at arrowcreo at arrowcreo.com and that's neurocast at arrowcreo spelled A-A-R-O-A-A-R-O-W-C-R-E-O.com Bit of a mouthful that one is, but that's where you find the email of the for the podcast now and you can find content from the podcast also linked with arrowcreo.com and that is again a-a-r-o-w-c-r-e-o.com that's a place in future weeks where you'll be able to get the transcripts of the podcast any podcast announcements and any resources about the guests as well as you can follow NeuroCastPod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook for any information about the podcast. As I was saying, this episode hears me talking about to Victoria Ellen actually asking on this episode with you right now. Um, hello. <laughs> My name's Victoria. Um, I run Actually Aspling. Um, I'm a neurodivergent content creator. Alright, so like, so Victoria, let's start by telling me about your neurodivergent story and your neurodivergent conditions. So, the first thing I was diagnosed with was dyslexia and dyspraxia uh, whilst I was at university. I was thinking that I was autistic anyway, but they referred me for this assessment first. Um... And as as I said, that was through my university. And then in 2017, when I was 25, I was diagnosed with autism. Yeah. All right. So what was it about, like, uh, being autistic that you thought before you even had your dyslexia and dyspraxia diagnosis, you thought, what were the signs you noticed? Um, There was lots of different things. There was loads of things from like my childhood and my behaviour, like the fact that I really like routines and I have lots of like sensory sensitivities and things. And it just kind of, you see a lot of things online that people are sharing and it's like, oh, I do that. So a lot of things were adding up and I was like, yeah, go for a diagnosis. Hmm. 
Oh, that's interesting to know the way you like pop, like even before you like didn't cons like even like before you didn't know, you just like started to stumble upon information and then started to piece it together. So then what was about your dyslexia and dyspraxia that like when you were in university was getting noticed? Um, I'd never really thought about it, but I have like problems with reading. The words jumble around a lot. My eyesight's really bad. Um, so that was the main thing I noticed about the dyslexia was like my problems with reading. With the dyspraxia, it was things like my spatial awareness. I can't walk in a straight line. I can't swim. I couldn't ride a bike. Just loads of little things that to do with my movement and my coordination that were a bit off. But I'd never really thought about it until they were like, go for the assessment. And then I was like, yeah, it, after they told me, it's like, yeah, it makes sense now. So like, how, how was like that in university? What was like the pick, picked up things and uh, treats that you, when you was at the state university that like you just passed, yeah, that, you know, like as you said, you know, like a lot of the struggles with like swimming and like bike cycling that can be the case like a teenager or like a child so what was it when you was getting to the stage of like university and at the stage of being an adult that was the signs of that being dyslexia and dyspraxia at that point when he started studying it was harder to notice because i didn't really other than the autistic traits i didn't really notice anything other than like the reading which is a really big thing that every time I read my eyes get blurry and the numbers move around and my spelling was getting really bad and my punctuation and my lecturers would point it out that you need to proofread your work more because there was lots of little mistakes and things so it was more the dyslexia that was getting noticed but the assessment was like a dual assessment so I got um tested for both at the same time so it just so happened that i was diagnosed with dyspraxia as well, well that's interesting as you said i was able to get double diagnosis there and double assessment and i think with dyslexia itself it's easier to be noticed upon when you're in university as that's what your lecturers or like tutors be able to notice within you rather than dyspraxia which like is as I say, it's been more practical tasks. And when you like studying at university, it's more like doing essays and writing yeah. stuff like that. And that doesn't always require the same visible practical tasks as what dyspraxia is. So did you think like any like signs and traits got missed uh, when you was in the like uh, comp and uh, primary school? Yeah, oh, primary school, I think the dyspraxia was probably more of an issue because I was younger and everyone around me was like learning to ride a bike and they could do all these like things in PE, like throwing balls and doing forward rolls. I couldn't do a forward roll for, for years. I, st I don't think I still can. But that was one of the things that I didn't realise was the dyspraxia. But also that I'm very clumsy and I fall over a lot and... I can't walk in a straight line and I bump into people and in primary school and high school I'd just fall and I'd bump into people and my spatial awareness was so bad but no one really kind of picked up on it I guess. Yeah so uh, yeah it can relate to some of that stuff and I think when it's like you come to adult age it's more like like you know it affects you more like with your household or they 
take to take a task sounds like maybe like you like maybe you're trying to drive or maybe you're training a lot to say doing like household tasks like cooking and as a thing to myself now like I still can't are able to, to take a lease so it's like a lot of those practical tasks where you start learning at primary school ages how to start doing a bit not uh, driving but especially like with bike cycling as kind of plays similar type of skills so like what struggles do you find or challenges even do you find today that like really to your dyspraxia I'd, I'd say driving but because I'm epileptic I, I'm not safe to drive but when I was having driving lessons I found it so difficult like my reaction times to things and just the whole using the steering wheel was I just found it so difficult the other thing that I find with the dyspraxia that has always been an issue is my handwriting and that's not improved my handwriting has always been really bad and it continues to be really bad I find for me, like, handwriting can fluctuate. Like, wherever, like, it kind of depends on, like, the energy and, like, you know, if you, like, can be more fatigued and all that. All. And then I think, if I'm writing now as I am, like, just taking notes on an interview off, like, where to, like, pick up and talk or find different conversational points to follow up with, or, like, I can notice by you on, like, in my notepad that, you know, like, it, you can have varying writing styles between one piece of paper or one, one task you're trying to write on. And so, yeah, that's when noticeable traits. And then I definitely found that challenges when studying in comp writing tasks. And, you know, like, it's that thing of being getting, trying to encourage to write more neater. Did you, like, find... It can affect your confidence and maybe what you found the first time you heard about it. I found in primary school, definitely, it was everyone was, because we had to start writing with pencils and it wasn't until year five that you got like a pen license and you could use your pen. But I, I was the last person to be able to use a pen and that felt really bad. And then at university, I've been really lucky that for a lot of things, I'm allowed to use a computer so that because my handwriting is so bad they let me use a computer to type up all my notes and do all my exams and it's just so much easier because you can actually read my work yeah i think like well like sometimes i think personally with like writing like typing on all that this your thing with like writing you can like go out a piece of your own thoughts and that but with typing it's like can it slow down all trying to match up the speed of where your brain is going. Do you think, as if you got, like, chronic illnesses every as you, like, I remember seeing it. So do you think some of the traits, how do you think having chronic illness with dyspraxia and autism? Yeah, I think so. I think when I have a flare-up with the ME, I find that my vision's worse, the dyslexia, reading things is a lot worse, and I get a lot of chronic pain. So I find that walking is <laughs> a lot more difficult because I'm, I'm so exhausted I can't I don't it's not that I don't look where I'm going I just find it a lot more difficult everything's just like harder when I'm tired yeah I understand that probably when you're tired or getting a bit more fatigued it's then both being like having a chronic illness itself and then it's probably knocking on to your other conditions because as you say like autism affects your ability to process stuff so it's probably the case it kind of affects your ability to process what where you're going and like other practical tasks or any other things you might need to do probably does affect your ability to process even your walk your brain goes like effects knocks on your both physical and cognitive uh, conditions. 
Mm-hmm. My handwriting as well gets worse. The tighter I am, I've noticed my hand, I can't write properly because my hand cramps up and I just find it really difficult to write. Oh, I understand that. Yeah, you can imagine the way that then is knocked on by both Emmy and being dyspraxic. And when thinking of to go back to, when was the first time you heard about dyspraxia? I think it was 2016. So it wasn't really that long ago. I knew, I kind of knew about dyslexia because I'd heard about it or read about it but I never really knew about dyspraxia until I was diagnosed. And another question uh, you know because you were diagnosed late in life uh, like at state university how did that impact yourself? How did it feel getting diagnosed then and finding out later on did you miss your own diagnosed earlier? I do honestly wish I'd been diagnosed earlier because I'd like to think that I would have got more help. I can't guarantee that I would have but I would have liked to think that there'd be more understanding but I'm just I'm just glad I was diagnosed when I was because it was just helpful it just gives you some understanding of this is why you are the way you are and this is like you accept yourself and you know that okay well what what can I do to like help myself like in terms of universities like now that I know I'm diagnosed what things can I do to make it easier so it just kind of helps in terms of support and things as well. When I'm talking to guests one thing I'm interested in like how how does that moment you know come together and how do you piece up like the previous elements of your life how did you find yourself looking back on your childhood and teenage years and reflecting on how you were, uh, were then? Yeah oh my childhood reflecting back is really interesting because I do notice a lot of things. My mum tells me as well, I was very passive. One of the main things that I noticed is like my, I struggled with like making friends and I didn't understand like the social norms and things like that. Um, So I found that really hard. And I know that I would come home from school and have like meltdowns a lot, but at the time we didn't know what it was. And then there was loads of sensory things as well. Like when I'd be outside, little things would bother me. And my parents would never, they wouldn't know why. But it's like, no, this thing is like rubbing on my skin. I don't like it. But when you're a child, it's really hard to kind of verbally get that across to someone. Yeah, I understand that because it's hard to get verbally across because, you know, in that moment of yourself, you don't know what's going on with yourself and it's hard to then process and communicate that if you're not so aware of what it is. And especially, like, I think if you're autistic, find it struggle to understand how everyone else is being up doesn't work like how you work because you kind of sometimes you're not diagnosed earlier you think oh don't everyone else's brains uh, act like that yeah I I agree because I find it difficult to understand how I'm feeling but then to try and understand how everyone else is feeling on top of that it's a lot and people aren't straight up with you it's hard to understand how other people are feeling because they don't just tell you directly yeah understand and as you say it's like with the internal feelings yourself, it's that alexithymia, and then with it, you know, everyone else, it definitely is. If you find a struggle to understand your own brain, it's hard to understand everyone else's brain, and you're kind of like socially divergent, and you know, divergent for all social norms. It's hard to interpret uh, people's social interactions of people's social cues and register to how they're feeling. And one thing I want to get back to on that, you were saying about how your parents, uh, how you, you were with your parents, you know, before you were diagnosed, and what, what was it like, like for them when you had your diagnosis on them looking back? My mum 
already knew. <laughs> she she already knew because she, she went through the whole process with me and she she just kind of always knew that I was autistic. As a child, she didn't have much understanding about it. But as I grow, grew up, she was working with autistic children at the time. And a lot of what she saw when she was working, she saw in me. So she just kind of knew that, yeah, I think you're autistic. And when I got diagnosed, it was just a thing. It was just like, yeah, we already knew that. My dad was very supportive. Sometimes I have to remind him that he does things and it's like, well, I've told you before, don't do that. And he just doesn't get it. But he's he tries. He tries to be very understanding and supportive. And I'm very appreciative of that. So... They both were, they've both been amazing. So, yeah. And my niece, who's five, <laughs> we all live together and she's just been diagnosed as well. Amazing then, because, you know, like, it's really nice, I guess, can be able to talk through things and then help her to understand her own autism. And then I think it's probably maybe the figure in her life that you miss when you was a child, you had that figure that you knew was autistic and then that in itself probably will be able to make your niece feel less alone and then I guess that that in itself is valuable. I think we've always had like very open communication and I think I honestly I think my mum's autistic as well um she thinks she is so when she first kind of told me look I think you're autistic I was I said to her well I already know I was already in the process of researching it and talking to my doctor about it but it was a very, very easy conversation to have, which was nice. By the seams of it, maybe like, from, like I think from some sometimes, just having one person in the family getting diagnosed, I assume it kind of helps like, piece together maybe what like the brings and living your family since it's a genetic condition. From that self, that maybe helped yeah. your men, men understand who she is. And it probably like helps with your needs because like, at least when you're like sister or like your brother or whatever, like when your niece was getting diagnosed, was you able to say there's a you know relative in the family, you know yourself, who's autistic, so the genetic link with that. And then do you think they were able to understand like some of your traits that make be so deaf in your niece? I think so, yeah. I mean, my sister's got a genetic condition. So they thought it was that at first, but it, it turns out it's not. But it was really interesting because we were able to say, yeah, someone in the family does have autism, they are autistic. So they definitely took that into consideration when they were um, seeing my niece. She's very, she's very different to me. <laughs> There's lots of things that she does that I don't do and vice versa and stuff. But I think we are similar in a lot of ways as well. The thing is, that's true for autistic people, each of us. Like everyone else, you know, like autistic people, we all different. There's always that commonality to certain things we'll all experience. But then there's like so much that differs between us as people and within our personalities. Like what's your experience with unmasking? Because I want to be able to discuss people's stories with unmasking and being their true authentic autistic selves. I've tried to unmask a lot because I got to a point where I was aware that I was masking, especially when I was outside. I realised that I was stimming a lot and some of the ways I was talking and things, people would say that they're not appropriate. So in conversations, I would like flap my hands and things. 
and people would find it weird but it got to a point where if it makes me feel comfortable and helps me to like self-regulate I've decided that I'm just gonna flap my hands so it's taken a while but I feel like I shouldn't have to mask just to make other people feel comfortable I should be allowed to do what makes me feel comfortable as well as I say, I think with unmasking and finding your true artistic self, it does take a while, while because it, it's like a process, not an event, because it takes a while understanding your own self, researching and understanding autism, and as I said, trying to come, overcome that barrier of internalised ableism or the ableism of others who don't understand you. Might not, not just understand you, but like understand you, like where you do things. So it does take a lot of time to get that confidence. And so I guess it's like you've found a journey in yourself so far. Yeah, you do. You realise that these are my autistic traits. Originally, it's like, oh, well, that's what makes me weird. People are looking at me funny because of this and that. And I should hide and just pretend that, you know, I'm not like this. But then it's like, well, eventually for me, I realise that I'm proud that I'm autistic, you know. And these are the things that make me who I am. And I don't want to hide them. I shouldn't have to. But it took me a while to get to the point where I was comfortable outside of my bedroom to to just be myself. Yeah, I think that's a struggle for many people because, you know, it's that that does knock on yourself and can knock on confidence and where some people, for the safety of themselves, are still uh, masking and... You know, like probably like sometimes, like myself and yourself, probably in some cases and scenarios, to find yourself masking on the basis of making yourself mm-hmm. then feel safe rather than just feeling comfortable and expressing yourself. And so, did you find uh, when you felt you have to a mask, do you feel that knocked on your confidence, knocked on your mental health? It did a little bit. Because you spend so long pretending to be something you're not that for me, I was just thinking, well, who am I anymore? I felt really lost and I didn't understand. It just, it made me so depressed for a while. But then eventually when I felt like, okay, I I can unmask in, in these situations, the exhaustion went down. I felt happier because I was just allowing myself to be myself. There are still some situations where I do mask or I feel I have to, because for some autistic people, it's not safe to unmask. There are situations where you, for your own safety, you have to, but my mental health did take a massive dip. And I think for, like, it's the case that uh, to unmask, sometimes it can be a privilege and not some a privilege most are afforded. You know, it's like you could do it because it's like a thing that drew out of fear and habit. So, like, if you're still in that place where you fear, of course, you know, you would be um, unmasking then. So, what does unmasking look like to yourself? You know, how have you found that finding that joy and uh, euphoria with unmasking? I think for me, one of the main things is stimming. I didn't realise I'd stimmed a lot, but I do. So I now feel comfortable to take my stim toys outside and my, yeah, my jewellery and my fidgets and I'll sit on the bus and I'll I'll stim with them. 
I never used to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, like I think now, like these days, I'm trying to like, carp- like sometimes carry a tangle fidgets myself, you know, that's like helps on your legs. It's like finding like parts of it, so like you could try to like find yourself like comfortable with it because, you know, like I think seeing your post in your own self that with time you've been using like discrete stems and like and then finding the road off like using vegetarians like stem toys or stem things. Yeah, I started off just having things in my pocket that people couldn't see because I didn't want people to stare at me or judge me. But now I just I just have them out on the bus when I'm travelling and I I love it. And I I'm at a point where if it helps me, it helps me. It shouldn't matter what anybody else thinks about it. I also when I'm really happy, I jump around and I flap a lot and I used to hide doing that because it everyone would say what are you doing? But when I'm really, really happy, I do. I flap, and and I, yeah, I just do, and I'm I'm happy to do that now. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty because yeah, something just like that, or could be seen as like that. As other people would see it, like then they try to like try or like what you associate to when you do when you get to have a bit of fun and so express your joy. It's pretty liberating then, and you know, like focus on then. It's pretty euphoric then, releasing that bit energy. Yeah, that's exactly it. And people, they look at, especially when children do it, they look at they look at you and go, oh, what's that child doing? And they make really horrible comments. But when you're really happy, you do get this burst of energy and you just want to, like, release it because you're so happy. What type of stuff, like, makes you happy and gives you that sense of joy? The main thing that I can think of is probably related to my special interest. Like, I like art trails and things. And at the moment, there's been a lot of them where I live. So when I'm walking, because they're all outdoors, when I'm walking around, like Manchester, and I just, I, I flap and I jump and I squeal and I get so happy. And it's just really nice to be able to let myself do that. And there's, there's loads of kids and people around and I'm just like, yeah, I don't care. I'm really happy. So I'm going to let myself be happy. Oh, that's good because, you know, like it does take a lot to think, like lacking that care, you know, and the thing is, great, you know, like for, for your own confidence, just to be able to police that and without caring the world and reasons to one then, you know, more of a like, focused interest, what do you say you have? I really like psychology that would be one of them probably and the other one is probably music because I, I, I yeah music is a massive stim for me I love music so uh, one thing with like psychology like have you found like that has helped you uh, understand your own autism and being able to indulge in research and help you be perfected in understanding your own mind and I think so. Being able to understand how the brain works and things has helped me. But then a lot of the resources in psychology are still really outdated. They still call it a disorder and it's still all very, it's like a deficit model. So all the stuff that I read in my textbooks and things and my lectures are still very yeah negative they've got a negative focus so as much as it's helped me it's made me realize that in the field of psychology there's still a long way to go does it help and give a lot of value that you know like reading into that area and you know like doing research on it because i think it does take an autistic person 
to be able to reflect and look at that and see this you say as if it wasn't for yourself looking into that you might not be able to have the person mm -hmm. to find the issues and the representation within those test textbooks and within psychology resources to actually pluck out problems and start to find a solution. So, like, I know you're interested in psychology and you're uh, doing a PhD study. So tell me a little bit about that. I definitely think that, like, we do need autistic people doing the research and making the resources because other people don't, they don't really have the experience. They don't know how our brains work. So for me to be able to do research as an autistic person is huge. I'm in my third, yeah, my third year of my PhD now. And it's been a long process, but I'm finding it really interesting because the area that I'm looking at is adult diagnosis. And I'm looking at late diagnosis and autistic assessments and things like that and it's really interesting and it's made me realize that a lot of the things that late diagnosed autistic people go through it's very similar we have like the same similar experiences and quite a lot of it is negative like the bullying and finding school hard and things like that but I like that I am able to try and that I'm doing this research because I think it's really important and that I hope that by doing it can make an impact and hopefully influence change. That is why I'm doing it, essentially. So what would you say are the key things you found out from that and then what do you hope like to find out to be able to influence change and what change from what you've been able to see? Do you think that needs to be done to actually change things for the better? So I'm still in the process of analysing my research. I've not finished yet. We, but what one thing I do know is that the diagnostic measures that are used for adults are rubbish. And a lot of people are not getting diagnosed because the assessments are just outdated and old. And yeah, we need more adult assessment tools. We do because most of them are made for children and I'm an adult I'm not a child so but it, it's really interesting like I said because a lot of the things that are coming out are they're all similar about how being like diagnosed how much validation people have felt how much understanding they have now um, and how much they struggled as a child but went undiagnosed and because they were undiagnosed didn't get any help or support and that as an adult that they've been able to reflect and people have been able to tell me about their experiences and you can just see the change and how having a diagnosis has had such a positive like impact and how people are starting to accept that they're autistic and be proud of that. One thing that I get from when you were saying about the diagnosis I was thinking is one thing that could be a problem there is as you said a lot of their diagnosis is tailored for children and a lot of diagnosis is tailored for male autistic people and so sort of like a lot, lot of uh, women and girls and non-binary uh, assigned female at birth people could face is like a lot of with not having a diagnostic criteria designed for that specific, uh, you know, uh, demographic or gender. So have you found issues in it being more tailored to the male experience of autism or what, what we see as a maleness, if you get what I mean? Yeah, most of the ones that I looked at are 
geared more towards white males. There have been some that have been made for other demographics, but personally, I believe that autism doesn't have a gender. I think that anyone can have any traits. I don't think that it should be split into male and female. I think that it doesn't matter what gender you identify as, you're autistic and ha- can have any traits. Yeah, that's, yeah, that is a good point to make and I do agree on that because a lot of the time we do end up talking about the gender gap and gender deficit between like lack of a diagnosis but tailored to women and girls and you know like the highly diagnosed of a uh, you know boys and men and as you said that is a lot of gender fluidity gender diversity and you know and there's a lot of uh, people in the community who are non-binary trans and might bear no identify under the veil of male and female like sort of myself and with that you know like talking about us like a male thing or female thing can be quite problematic so what things on the basis of that gender issue of just seeing it in the binary do you find is still a problem in diagnostic uh, in the uh, psychology uh, area? Yeah, I, I find that a lot of the old diagnostic measures were for males. A couple of years ago, they started bringing out ones for women and girls, which I think is great. But people do forget about non-binary people, gender fluid people, trans people. They People are still very male and female. And it's like you miss out so many other demographics. I think we need a diagnostic tool that doesn't split it, that doesn't kind of focus on gender. It just focuses on autistic traits instead, because you can have you can have any gen, you can be any gender or identify with any gender and have any autistic traits. Traits are traits. Exactly, as you say that, you know, like of us may not find that we identify under the social gender norm. So that in itself is explicit way of like saying that it needs to be understand that it can't be cl- clubbed together under two different umbrellas, and that's something that needs to be understood. And as you say, it goes in that uh, making it easier to ac- make it accessible for women and girls getting diagnosed something that does need to be tackled and find the best solution into that itself and as I said it just needs to not segregate mm-hmm. between two genders is there any key ways of like within diagnostic criteria that you would specifically like to see changed I would like to create my own assessment I've been saying this for years um, I would like to have an assessment that focuses on autistic traits and does not ask you your gender because it doesn't matter you're either you have autistic traits essentially or you don't so I think we should focus on diagnosing people based off the traits they present not what gender they identify as yeah because I guess when you said about like the gender issue then you know it's not exactly the traits that we talk about that may be related to gender but sometimes it could be the rare common experiences of people based on any gender could experience certain ways that we typically talk about lack of diagnosis in women and girls could be like causing like negative experiences within like certain susceptible 
to pull you in or to to harassment and that and that's more the areas of like how that can be affecting experience driven rather than actually relating to actually treats and symptoms yeah no i agree with that the experience makes up a lot it really does can you tell me about your experiences with me and epilepsy yeah so the epilepsy was the first thing i was actually diagnosed with in 2013 i have partial complex seizures i think that's what it's called i don't have as many seizures as i did because i am uh, heavily medicated which helps so at the moment they are under control but i know that whenever i'm stressed there is more chance of having a seizure and being epileptic that is the reason i can't drive because you need to be seizure free for a whole year before you can drive and i make it to about eight months every time and then have to start again the me is something that it's not officially diagnosed my doctor said she thinks that i probably do have it but it's not like an official diagnosis or anything so i self-diagnosed with that but that is just awful because i'm exhausted all the time i'll go to bed early i'll sleep for about 12 hours and i'll wake up and i'm still tired i can't get away from how tired i am and i get a lot of chronic pain with that i get migraines and my i get back pain and leg pain and shoulder pain and i have to use a walking stick sometimes as well because sometimes my legs don't want to work but it's not nice <laughs> it's not nice at all with your uh, epilepsy diagnosis beforehand, what do you understand uh, to be like the link with epilepsy and autism? Because I know like there's definitely sometimes link between the two. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure because it's not something I've looked into, but I do know there is supposed to be a link. And I know that a lot of autistic people are also epileptic, but I, I, I don't know why I haven't looked it up. I... So uh, how have you found your experience to starting to get a diagnosis for your chronic ME? I knew for ages that there was something wrong, essentially, because ever since I was a child, I've always overslept, I've always had chronic pain I've always had migraines there was loads of little things that added up and I spoke to my mental health support worker through university and we looked at the guidelines for um, ME and she said that that's probably it if you fit everything phone the doctor so I spoke to my GP in 2020 I think it was and I said look I've looked at the guidelines I have all these issues i think it's this and she said it could be long covid at first but i was like well i've been having issues since i was a child that haven't gone away so she said that it probably sounds like you do have ma you need to self-refer yourself for cbt therapy and that was it so it wasn't a concrete diagnosis it wasn't a referral it was just a yes i think that's it go and have some therapy it seems like guess probably felt a bit odd like getting sent over to a cognitive behavioral therapy because i know that can be used for like mental health or mental illnesses chronic pain yourself having a me i guess went to see an actual doctor that could guess help you with actual physical pain and stuff like that so i guess you've probably found issues with that referral yeah, the CBT therapy, I, I don't know how it is supposed to help. I was just told it would. I was put on a waiting list. I waited a year and I'm still I'm still waiting. It's not it didn't go it didn't go anywhere. I'm gonna be finding out through this podcast series that like 
and talk to people out, you know, like there is that thing of uh, not things struggling to get there and, you know, like long waiting lists and all that. I think that's the struggle people do experience is if, like, you can't go afford to, like, go private or, like, pay for anything yourself, you know, like, at the moment it's a long slog. And as I said, it's like with Lewis, Dr. Singh on COVID and not getting us into the waiting list. I was just saying, I've been on the waiting list for over a year and it's just, it's awful that people have to wait. I'm also on a waiting list for an ADHD assessment as well, but there's waiting lists for everything. I, I think, like, I could potentially have it, because, but, like, I haven't said anything about it, like, potentially having ADHD and it's, like, something I haven't, like, pursued talking much about it. You know, like, there's sometimes question it because like a lot of traits between autism or dyspraxia overlates and so like it's hard to know what is what so like what was it mm-hmm. like a year look so far and thought that's I think I fit that criteria I think for, it's really hard there's some things for example like the autistic side of me likes routine and structure but the ADHD part of me hates it I will plan a routine and then I'm very impulsive and won't stick to it and then I'll get upset because I've not stuck to it but then my brain's like yeah but you like the impulsivity as well like routine on structure if you're like on a day-to-day level of uh, my neurodivergent uh, brain it's like the more memory and like kind of remembering to do things I think what normally throws me out of place so uh, if I could think that I could have it I could take a tablet one minute and then like, literally like 30 seconds later I've eaten nothing so you kind of look around the place and you don't know what needs to be done in your day-to-day tasks. When tab routine or like you've got like things to literally like your brain kind of goes like a random void of like not thinking of what you've got to do with your day-to-day tasks. Yeah, I, I struggle day-to-day because my brain just I can't focus for more than like five minutes so I never get anything done and then I'll get distracted and then I'll forget what I was supposed to be doing and then I'm just all up my brain is all over the place yeah I understand that because like if you get distracted by like or either like if you've got like a focused interest you might get distracted with something relating to that if you're like again again addicted to social media you know like it could be just then on your phone and, and then you sort of like blew out to me oh am I supposed to be doing something on like that and it's like could take ages to get around to doing something and and I think like with routine or like when you got like certain things to plan and I think then like, you can get built around by how much you gotta do or like what you gotta do and it being able to feel some days like and it's struggling to try to do something because if it seems like it's too hard of a mountain to climb you might not fancy doing it at all so it definitely knocks on out yeah it, it does I will say to myself you've got this thing to do and then an hour later I'll be sat there and I'll be like yeah I didn't do the thing oh it's like that thing sometimes you know like you got things to do and then you could like be like there and like it takes a couple of days to do it like everyone's doing on your list. Yeah. Is that the type of things that you started to notice or you thought, yeah, if it's a criteria for ADHD? Is there any other like, yeah. traits you noticed? There was, there was loads of things, like the focus thing was an issue. Um, I can't sit still. I, I, I'm physically restless. I can't sit still at all. Um, my brain feels like it's physically fizzing as well and everything is so fast feels like I can't slow down my brain is just going all the time and that's the reason I drink coffee because drinking coffee helps me to slow down a little bit and like do you think that, like coffee like could affect or like stuff like that you know like 
you can find yourself either like of an overactive mind act like certain point. Do you find in like certain points there you feel like you're kinda of going busy in your brain? Do you find yourself having like certain slumps at certain points? Not usually. It's really hard because my brain is very hyperactive, so I drink coffee and the coffee helps me to calm down. But the coffee also helps with like my exhaustion which is nice because my body will be aching i'll be really tired like physically tired but my brain will still be really active so it's really hard to kind of slow my brain down <laughs> i guess you got probably think you got more like a hyperactive than into inattentive ADHD is it? Yeah, because you thought maybe if I do work it would be like an inattentive and because like think like never I never think that like of that much energy or like can be there quite tired and you know like like sometimes you can be like there sitting there and pause or like you can like zone out a bit like that's what I find with myself. Do you think like there was anything that could be missed you when you was trying to in terms of ADHD, or do you think, because, like, you might not fit the typical stereotype of ADHD, do you think that's why you, like, later on in your adulthood, you start starting to look into it now? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, it, it seems that way. I asked my mum, and she said that when I was a child, I was quite calm, but... I know that as a child, I would get restless, really, I'd get restless all the time. So that was something. I also had like attentional difficulties as a child. I couldn't focus at all. Um, and I was, I was and still am easily distracted. I think as a child, I didn't notice because I'm a child. I didn't really understand. But now that I'm an adult, I understand it more. And I see, it's again, you see a lot of things online. And people are sharing things and I'm thinking, I do that. And everything, it seems to make sense. My doctor seemed to agree with me, so they referred me straight away. <laughs> That's excellent. They got like, an, like pretty much a quick referral. Yeah. And like, I think with like when younger, it's kind of like this stereotype of what ADHD can be quite impactful and not mm-hmm. getting that diagnosis. Because like, I think for a lot of people, it's like that stereotype of like not, being a naughty boy in the corner, that's, well, like, you maybe as a child, yeah. you look at and then you kind of get that internalised ableist look of it and that stereotype that kind of, like, makes you think of it in one way and without looking at the complexity of it. And I find with, like, being, like, neurodivergent, it's, like, the value of, like, internet and social media has been, like, you can start to look up these things and, like, understand many things about neurodivergent since they wouldn't understand before i think when i was a child definitely like teachers had a very narrow view of what neurodivergency was and how it presented itself and it was very stereotypical so if you didn't fit what they saw to be like autistic or adhd then nothing would be done about it whereas now you do have social media and there are people like you and me and so many other people kind of sharing experiences and resources that people are, they have more understanding. Do you think like if there was not understanding and like when you were at school age, do you, do you kind of get like a positive or negative experience with school? I think school for me was, it was so negative, even with social media around it, I, 
it was really really negative and I think it's negative for a lot especially like teenagers there's so much bullying on social media whereas when you're an adult I feel more in control of my social media now and I can go through and keep an eye on what I'm looking at and the people I'm interacting with so as an adult it's much more positive but as a child I found it really negative and I think probably that's child and it's like as I said you probably like didn't understand who you are in terms of you didn't know who you like you are you brain is in terms of like being autistic dyspraxic dyslexic and have, have an ADHD and then there's struggles with chronic illness then and then it probably that effect knocked on making a negative experience and then I think when I look back at my experience at school like it's pretty well in it and got, got along pretty all right but I found like it's a thing of like this school, it can trigger a lot of anxiety or, like, can start to make you feel like anxiety about, like, stepping out to, like, not, like, you know, like, and, like, not not even, like, feeling anxious about taking a day off or stuff like that. So I think then, like, I think you end up masking because of the anxiety within that. Oh, sorry, what? Sorry, I zoned out then. <laughs> I zoned out. All right, yeah. <laughs> Oh, when you for second. All right, so yeah, it was just saying that you know in in school, uh, you know, like it's like you know, it's that experience when you like yes, like you can feel a bit anxious with it, and so like you know, like if you like feel like anxious about like st- stepping out to like you know, like you know, like like actually you know, like speaking up for yourself and saying that I'm struggling, you or like you know, feeling the things too loud and like can't really cope in a space like because it's a bit too bright or a bit too noisy, a bit too destructive like or you know like or like if you like a certain environment sometimes you know like that can of wrestling me cancers and I think if you like that the autonomy and control I have as an adult I think school can be anxious thing especially if you've got be drilled in certain rules to you like you know about you know complaining with school rules and stuff like that yeah I think I was one of the kids that was struggling but I was too scared to say anything because it's like well yeah. what do you say help me and then you don't get help anyway yeah, yeah because like I guess you didn't have like that like diagnosis and you couldn't have the tailored help that you would need and like then that probably made you like a kind of credit kid in the stall corner kind of struggling and not not sure what to do and so that and I think that in itself not knowing then has a negative impact on school as a child yeah I think so and then having to mask as a child as well is is the thing because I was struggling and I knew I wouldn't get any help so you just sat there and pretended that you were okay and that that is masking and you don't realize as a child that you're sat in primary school Masking that you need help. It's like even though it wasn't in your position of like getting diagnosed as an adult, it was like uh, when I was ten or uh, eleven years old. And it was at, and then uh, even that at that point, I literally didn't know how to say that I was autistic. So like kind of full comp and in the famous school, I was like kind of keeping it quiet and just never really said anything about it until like and it got to like sixth form, and so it's like. That in itself, you know, like you can just feel like you could have got stay quiet and keep undercover for a bit for like those years. And then it's like 
I'll have like a place where you can like uh, feel naughty, comfortable, and speaking up like as you would when you're adult and kind of advocating for yourself. And I guess that's from like I think with like in school you're not in a position where you can talk up for yourself. So I think that's probably a struggle, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I find I still find it hard to like advocate for myself, but as a child, I didn't really understand. I knew I had problems, but I didn't. I didn't know how to ask for help. What do you say? It's finding the words to actually physically say, "Look, I need help." And I think sometimes then it's like not knowing what certain help or specific help would you need. And like I think, like if you've been autistic, I think sometimes you know, like you struggle to think of what you think, like you would have for tea or like. Like as an evening meal, so like I think if you can't see like the options in front of you, then you struggle to see. Oh, that's the type of help I need. So I think that in that in itself comes quite a struggle. And I think it's like, I think what would help, you know, like when you're child, is like that kind of education and being more aware about like what uh, neurodivergence is, like from like a young school age. And I think. That in itself, but it's probably changed things a lot. Yeah, I think there does need to be. People have some understanding, but I definitely think with younger children, there does need to be more of an awareness in school. Yeah, because I guess at that point, it was like the time where you sometimes end up going home with feeling quite burnt out, like having like shutdowns or meltdowns and stuff like that from that. Yeah, especially with that press and we are studying. And like an old... Like you, like I uh, meant to ask about university and like, I've, like what type of challenges have you faced there and what like certain coping mechanisms and like tips or studying there have you found? So when I first started, I found it difficult in terms of making friends because I clearly stuck out <laughs> um, and I found it really, really hard to make friends. So I just, I made one friend um, and stuck with that one friend throughout my degree, which helped. Um, I found lectures really hard as well because processing information is, I find it really difficult. So I always would ask for lecture notes in advance so that I had time to read through them before the lecture so I could understand exactly what my teacher was talking about rather than feeling lost and confused it that was really helpful just things like looking round before classes finding out where I was going I'd always sit in the same seat I'd always use the same computer it was just keeping everything the same so that it was familiar I like familiar familiarity yeah like when i tried to university for a few weeks uh, because i kind of like struggled so much with it like and i thought it was best for me to chop out if i used to be like you know like struggling so, so much more with like the emotional and side of it because you know like so much struggling and pace to get used to it because like i find so many going from like somewhere like uh, sixth form to that uh, environment it's quite a big challenge and it's like you know, like, with, like, no, not knowing anyone when you start or, like, feel like you don't know anyone in that room. It's so daunting and to uh, challenge and enter in that space, especially sometimes when, like, I can, like, I answer and, like, 
I feel like, you know, being t- even told I've been a bit of and looking down and stuff like that. So, like, be, being in big spaces and then if you're, like, in a big room, I tend to get answers around that stuff. So, and then you, you adapt into your uh, studying style of, like, doing different style of lectures. And I think for many factors, there's been a divergent university as struggle can be struggling to what type of like tips and things have you found that help to cope with uh, university yourself? I think definitely having lecture notes before the lecture is a big thing. Um, I found as well using a dictaphone really helpful. So recording my lectures because some people are better or prefer um, the auditory processing. I find it really difficult, but having a recording to listen to after the lecture is really helpful using a computer is another thing that really helped me because my brain will think of things and I can't write them down quick enough so using a computer really helped um I think as well knowing where the quiet spaces are really helped me because if I was overwhelmed I just had somewhere that I could go to um was so helpful because there were so many times where I'd get overwhelmed that I just needed to escape so knowing where there's somewhere quiet that you can sit helps um and also one thing that I like to do is I like to have a work schedule because when you're in university the amount of work you have to do is a lot so I have a schedule for well I did for different classes so I knew what I had to do for each class. I knew that on Monday I'd do this, Tuesday I'd do that, Wednesday I'd do something else so that I actually got all my work done on time because otherwise I'd leave it to the last minute and, yeah. Yeah, because I think the, the simple art of having a schedule and knowing what you got to in front of you is so beneficial, like, when it was, like, in comprehensive school because, like, it was, like, like set out for the thought you know, like what you would be doing and then I would be the same for you. It helps you remember where you want to be there and then. So like, think then as you were a divergent person, if you'd like to know repetitive behaviour, it's something that can help you thinking and get used to things. Because I think like, when you start in university, if you're not aware you're going to use the time, then you know, like having something in front of you like that does help. And like having it probably like, Bitten out in the diary, especially probably like with like your ADHD and like dysfunction and stuff like that. It, like every executive functioning using like that area of having a note down probably does help you a lot. And uh, as I said, like lecture notes, that's an easy way of ha- having it all hand and written down in you, fun to you. And as I said, like uh, recordings of lectures, personally, I find. Uh, listening to something is good better for myself than uh, actually reading it because what I think is with reading it like sometimes you know like you could be reading paragraphs and it feels more laboured and like you know like you know like because it's hard to concentrate and like needs to take breaks because like thinking like I get more visual processing challenges than I have auditory ones I think only if like so much noise around and then you know like at least for then because like to like help helps me is actively notating and then at least with listening to something it can helps me focus that way. Yeah, it's finding what works for 
your processing style. I used to print out lecture notes and then I'd write on them because I found that it'd help me if I got the information out of my brain onto the notes. So I'd have PowerPoints with lots of colours on and things. So it was very visual because I like I like visuals. Yeah, it's like, mind you, when I found, like, in uh, six form when I had, like, my PowerPoint slides print out. Also, like, I found for myself, it's like, with a, like, small gap. So I could, like, I found my way they didn't get big and flowy, so like that was like the issue then of like trying to fit it all in one page. So like as you said, it's like finding whatever works for you and you know, like whatever works for you, like thinking style and working style. And like a thing to when I always like challenges when university is like when you're starting to write like essays and that and like doing something that you've uh, never done before, that on itself that take takes time to find that style yeah it, it is just finding what works and especially when it comes to doing essays and things it can be really hard to know where to start and what to do yeah because like i think if it was university if it was like one change at a time then like so many different things going on i think i would have been able to maybe been able to like work the way through it but you know like there's so many governments and like didn't have that support there on day one. I think then things would have been different on like the impact of having it there ready to go when you start university is some beneficial. Yeah. I find it easier studying now because even though it's like a higher level, I'm only doing one thing. I'm working on one piece of research. I've not got four different classes and four different essays to write and I'm only doing one thing, so it's a lot. It's easier in that in that way. Yeah, because like as I said, you're doing a PhD project, and with doing a PhD, it's just like kind of anything, and it's a bit more target driven. And like as I think probably it's like the point where you at university, it's that point you had to diagnosis, and then from that, at least now you've been able to uh, understand yourself, and like this is the first time you're getting that support. And I think probably by now, that's the thing that's helped you get get things working now. Yeah, I think so. Being diagnosed when I was really helped. And it's given me the push that I needed to keep me going. Because, <laughs> yeah, I think probably, probably like, since you, like it was university that helped you get diagnosed, I think that's probably, like, helped you turn, like, helped, yeah, like for the better, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, like from like as you said, from when you were like getting diagnosis and like getting support, what would you be a tip for anybody like trying to access support in university or trying to access like diagnosis at the point that you did? I think the best thing to do if you want to get a diagnosis and you are at university is to speak to the disability services because they are the people that can help you they know the best way to go to get a diagnosis essentially um and especially for the dyslexia and the the dyspraxia um my university had someone that they had they were associated with who just came in and did the assessment so they had someone ready that could just do it so i'm not sure about other universities because i i can only speak about mine but it's definitely worth contacting the disability services and 
raising concerns with them and seeing what they can do. Yeah, as I said, like, there's different between universities, but I think most places have like some sort of like system and disability and team that you could go to where various struggling and you can pick up a diagnosis by talking to somebody like that. And like one thing that we were uh, going to chat, like a list of all to chat to you about that you've done a lot of talking about is puberty and me- menstruation, and making a lot of awareness on that. So and that, that is like not so much like a treat, treat, but like it's like you know like when those experiences from women and girls or like a second female with uh, non-binary and trans people to experience differently than a cis male people. So like, and then that's something related to the experience of what you experience of puberty and autistic people. And how have you found that experience different from other holistic uh, people? It's a lot of the experiences are very similar. The things we go through are very similar, but I think it's the degree to which we experience them, especially in terms of like sensory awareness things are much more intense um really really intense you feel things <laughs> yeah yeah i get that because you know like like i guess it's that sensory sensory difference so, so like you know like it's like if you're sense more sensitive to uh sort of like uh feelings and stuff like that so that's probably the, what makes things a bit different and then I guess maybe like then after probably like if like you know like certain stuff like men's reason I guess probably affects like certain like fatigue or burnout then maybe on or like you may, may feel like you sense it says I don't do you feel that yeah it may the sensory experience is just is everything because as an autistic person, I feel everything. So it's the little things um, that make a huge difference. Um, and I know everyone goes through puberty, but for an autistic person, the way you experience it and the way you perceive it is very different. It's not. It's not the same. Yeah, because like I think like without hormonal change, you know, like it's different then because like it's unexpected and. Like, do you know whatever, like, well, speaking from my point of view, like, as I said, in, well, not personal experience, experiences are experienced, menstruation, but I wonder if, like, then, like, when it was, like, going through puberty, I started puberty at nine, so quite early then I wonder if, like, then that's point where maybe, like, treats might have been heightened to get, like, started, like, being more anxious, and so, like, I, like, it's, like, interesting to know, like, like, I think then, probably, like, there's not much out there yet, but, like, it's interesting to know how, like, that can affect, like, the experience of autism then. Yeah, it, I think, especially as you go in through puberty, your autistic traits can be heightened, definitely. Things are, you're much more aware of things as well. Um, I've lost my train of thought. Oh, don't mind me. <laughs> oh. Didn't it before we recorded this yeah, podcast? It happens you know, a like, lot. Yeah. Yeah. Because, like, I think when he started doing this podcast, so 
I only really like so hard the medium is because like you kind of like even if I got like a script right in front of me like I kind of find sometimes like you kind of start to you know like up all over the place and can't think of the top of your thought and it, especially sometimes if you're trying to plan what you're going to say yeah. next. Yeah, I talk about puberty all the time, <laughs> so I I yeah. think I'd be used to it. Yeah, I think it's like kind of like the this is kind of exposed like for me like like kind of my impact on communication being autistic and dyspraxic and that it's like I can like totally like you can re- think of like certain things to say but like it's like even if you call like things easier like type down or like all infantry then it's like your brain doesn't always fire you up before you yeah yeah say. that happens all the time to me yeah 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 think, think it's from the train of thought again no it's gone I, I think uh, I, I was just saying that a lot of autistic traits are heightened during puberty. Yeah. Especially like yeah. masking as well. That is a big thing. Like as I was going through puberty, I, I, all these changes were happening and I tried so hard to just like hide it so people didn't see it. Yeah, I understand that because like thing is like I guess for when you like start puberty and menstruation now it's too. like I think it's like there's always that discomfort and like in like this is societal social embarrassment even though there shouldn't be there's a lot of like kind of like we get like seeing off like you know what what's just like a woman or like some or like anyone who has periods kind of naturally goes for so like and then uh, that poses quite big issue then mm, I think I know as a teenager, I found everything really embarrassing. Yeah. But now that I'm an adult, I don't. I'm very open <laughs> about like puberty and my experiences and things. And I just think that we need to talk about it more. Yeah, I think. Because it is this thing that people are embarrassed about, but it's just something that you go through. Yeah, I think that's kind of embarrassment, kind of best off if you. Like in a with a virgin community because like like the holistic social norms kinda of like of that kinda of like element of semen embarrassment that kinda of tries to make you feel semen embarrassment and you know, like I'd say it shouldn't be something seemed off. But so like all I think with the teenagers, it's kinda of like to find by like a sense of embarrassment and awkwardness that's basically like it kinda of experiencing things for the first time, like experiencing your like puberty and you know like it's a strange thing to go forward especially like if you're not so well to deal with it so what and in terms of like what type of awareness stuff you do around puberty and menstruation what what's like the main key points that you tend to focus on and like uh say when you're discussing so the main thing that i talk about is what it is um I talk about the sensory experience a lot, but I also talk about the social and emotional elements that people forget about. The things like making friends, having mood swings, the anxiety, the depression, going to school, all those things that people forget to talk about. And they're the things that I try and push a lot. And I talk a lot about education as well and how we need better resources and 
things like that they are the main things that I like to stress to like teachers and educators that you're not doing enough you're not preparing people enough and that is why they're struggling yeah I agree I say it's like that struggle then if you lack that understanding and don't know how to support anyone then and the thing is it's like things in the way of like listening to a like with like a, a medical professional or like a teacher or like working mm. in sport uh, teenagers and I think probably in that area then does need to be a bit more understanding and learning and talking with autistic adults who have been through puberty mm-hmm. like a, a very gender diverse uh, you know a group of all the community mm-hmm. to actually like like provide like some information and resources for those who are supporting our uh, teenagers to like mm-hmm. be able to say like for autistic people this is the challenges they may go through as teenagers going through puberty and just like teenage life and as you said that you like make a lot of awareness in terms of you like you talk some puberty mm-hmm. menstruation and teenagers about the mental health and I think it's that ages where you find a lot of autistic people and starting to experience mental health issues as consequences of masking and starting off that trauma of like either embarrassment or seem or like any like typical struggle any struggles that come along with it. And that that's the thing that people forget. I think as a child I would have liked to learn from an autistic person. Yeah. I would have liked to. I think that schools would benefit from having autistic people come in and talk to the autistic students and say, I went through this. I was sat where you are right now. Yeah. Because, like, I agree with that. Because I think that having to change, like, a whole school experience of, like, you've, you've had, like, uh, autistic people working with, like, a plan and stuff, like, to decide what, like, how to educate people in, like, a PSAT, so, like, on, like, sex help and, like, uh, body help and, you know, hygiene and stuff like that. Yeah. That stuff, like, does need to be there. And then, you know, like, as I said, mm-hmm. you know, like, people going into schools explaining, like, mental health and neurodivergencies. And I think I've a lot less on what neurodivergency is and what autism is. If I going into schools, Oh, and see more teachers or staff within school would be so beneficial as because like you may feel less alone get and you'd be able to likely see people diagnosed at young age and that and thing is like I think it would a lot probably made a lot different even a lot easier for yourself if you had to have people uh, in your classroom and who understood autism and empathize with it without uh, like seeing it in a negative way. Yeah, it'd make a huge difference to have someone who's been through it and understands yeah. it go through it and tell and be real with you. Yeah. Tell you all the things that your teachers might not tell you. Tell you that making friends is really hard and that anxiety is a thing. And I think talking about like LGBTQ stuff as yeah. well. Because you don't, you don't, literally, you get told your body will change and literally nothing else. Yeah, because, like, PHSE stuff is, like, very outdated. And, like, I think, you know, like, for people who, like, 
you know, like, because, like, school's still teaching in for gender binary thing, it's, like, even then, mm-hmm. like, I think there would be a lot help if, like, when you, like, get taught, like, when the girls get separated and talked about periods, yeah. then, you know, like, it's not, like, even the boys in the class learning about it. Mm-hmm. So, like, I think it's, as saying, it's more collective learning about it and, you know, bringing that kind of wide awareness to focus on, like, gender experiences, like, and as mm-hmm. said, uh, uh, LGBTQ, uh, like, health and edu- education awareness mm-hmm. and that for disability people with disabilities, whether it's physical and neurological and stuff like that, and hidden disabilities. I think all of that does need to change and, you know, like, come into modern day, I guess. Yeah, it really does. It feels like everything is stuck in the past. You don't get taught about LGBTQ things. You don't get taught about gender identity or anything like that. And then autistic people who probably are um, gender diverse or whatever have to find out on their own or through resources online. I think that if it was taught, things like that were taught in school, it would be really, really helpful. Yeah, because, like, like I think then, you know, like, even at that age, like, even if, like, there was, a, like, an autistic uh, person or, like, maybe masking but they are trans or non-binary may not feel comfortable at the age, like, coming out to then because, like, there's no, like, talk about it. So I think that's in itself yeah. is where you because you face in the community then. And as you say, yeah. I think with a lot of the public speaking and social media content you address, and it's like, this stuff at that age, you would like to hear yourself. Yeah, there's loads of different things that I just wish you don't hear about relationships yes. and things like that. You don't, you don't get told. Um, you really don't. So you're left kind of wondering lots of things and you have to go out and find it for yourself. And it's like, well, if I was just taught this, I'd have more understanding of who I am. Yeah. And I can tell that's what it like, yeah, because you have like awareness stuff that you do, like with public mm-hmm. speaking, social media content, live streams, like where you speaking to holistic people or neurodivergent people. It's like that's the stuff you're kind of focusing on, on what, what really could help you as like a teenager or could help anyone in like the position you've been in yourself. Yeah, I, I try and do a lot of. I try and tell schools to be inclusive, but there's only so many times you can tell them. There's a lot of people, I know I have a friend who talks about their experiences of being transgender and that they have gone into schools and have been telling people about their experiences. We definitely need more people, more gender diverse people, like especially sharing their experiences in schools and yeah. things i really think we do yeah and i think that itself at the minute is like a bit stagnant because it gets kind of polarized and you know like politicized mm-hmm. and i think that in itself is a lot of like i think lost struggles for the community because like bonnie would people and disabled people there's a lot of barriers still to overcome and all work like a lot of work as yourself you're putting in and community as all to try to like get to the point where we need yeah i think 
uh, it's just really hard because people still split things into binary yeah. <laughs> and it's like we we as autistic people are trying to move past that but society is trying to keep us there yeah and as, like as you notice when you started to do your uh, phd work you know as i said it was like the diagnostic criteria now we would redesign it and then you're like looking at the language and research i think you could see yeah. then at that point there's a lot of stuff that needs to be overcome there is there's so many different things in loads of aspects in, in universities in the workplace in schools we need to kind of catch up a bit yeah <laughs> so uh, is there anything in the workplace you find that needs to be cast up upon I think just workplace accommodations and yeah. things are a big thing that if you want an autistic person to, you want to be comfortable doing your job. So please give, please give me accommodations and then I can do my job to the best I can. If I'm struggling and the lights are too bright and it's too noisy, I'm not going to be able to do my job. Yeah, exactly. All right. I think we're close for mapping up. So is there anything else you would, would like to say? I don't think so. It's been really you know, interesting. We've spoken about a yeah, lot. Yeah, no, yeah, we've spoken about a lot and covered quite a lot of ground. And, you know, it's been great chat. So, is there anything else you want to, uh, like, what was, like, the one thing you want people to, to take away from this podcast interview? I think to reach out to autistic people, there is a lot of us out there sharing resources and things. So utilize yeah. us. That's what we're here. That's that's yeah. That's what a lot of us yeah. do. And please and please be understanding and patient. Ah, right. Where <laughs> uh, can people follow and find you on social media if you want to promote that? Um, my username is actually Aspling, and that is on everything. I think it's the same yeah, for everything. Yeah, like TikTok, uh, Instagram, yeah. all those social media platforms. And thank you very much to Victoria for coming on. As she said, you can find her on social media at Actually Aspling. And you'll be able to find resources then to her website, blogs and other links. And thank you for listening to this episode. This is the second episode back in the series. And we'll have another episode for you this coming Sunday. And we'll for the Begone of episodes and interviews recorded for the rest of the year and some planned for early 2023. So we'll be hearing next week from, I think, Lydia Wilkins, who's a journalist, who's got a cookery book out now and I'll be recording with her tomorrow. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe, recommend this episode to your friends and tell people to listen to this podcast and share it along. Thanks.